Hello and welcome to the latest CSF podcast on axial spondyloarthritis. We will be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis alongside our psoriatic arthritis podcasts and we will also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of axial SPA. First of all, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Atul Devdar. I'm a professor of medicine and medical director of rheumatology clinics in the division of arthritis and rheumatic diseases at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, USA. Joining me today is Professor Xenophon Bareliokos, Professor of Internal Medicine and Rheumatology at the Ruhr University in Bochum and a senior consultant and scientific coordinator of the Rheumatology Center in Hern, Germany. Also joining me today are Dr. Sophia Ramiro, a consultant rheumatologist and senior rheumat researcher at Zeiderland Medical Center and Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands, as well as Professor Hideto Kameda, Professor of Internal Medicine at Toho University. And of course, if you want to find out more about us and the papers we are discussing today, please head over to the CSF website that is www.cytokinesignaling.com. Time to hand over to Professor Kameda. Okay, thank you, too. Our first paper aims to determine when the optimal time to start secukinumab treatment is demonstrated by a significant difference between baseline and post-treatment BASTI scores. Our second paper that goes on to evaluate a case report of a 45-year-old male with ankylosing spondylitis and a dilemma-induced refractory paradoxical palm plantar pasteurosis after failure of prior secukinumab treatment. Over to you, Sophia. Thank you very much, Hideto. So our first paper is entitled When to Start Sikikinumab Treatment in Patients with Actual Spondyloarthritis Before or After Anti-TNF Treatment. Uh, as we know, Sikikinumab has demonstrated efficacy in actual SPA in randomized control trials, the measure two and the measure three trials. And previous data from RCTs has thus allowed to conclude that sikikinumab was, was more efficacious in TNF-naive, TNF inhibitors-naive patients than in TNF inhibitors-experienced patients. But actually, there is little data from daily clinical practice in which patients are not selected as they are uh, in, in randomized controlled trials. So the aim of this study was to evaluate the efficacy and safety of sikikinumab in patients with actual SPA, in both TNFI naive and TNFI experienced patients in daily clinical practice. This is a retrospective cohort study that consisted of 84 patients who were analyzed, stratified for their TNF inhib inhibitor exposure, 22 patients were TNFI naive, and 62 were TNFI experienced patients. PASDAI was assessed at baseline and after treatment, Treatment began with an initial dose, an initial loading dose of 150 milligram of sikikinumab weekly for four weeks. If no response was obtained at four weeks, then treatment was stopped, assuming a primary failure. After week four, the remaining patients were continued on sikikinumab, along with their BASTI assessments that were monthly performed. And if at week 
24, no response was obtained, then patients were considered as having a secondary failure and, sec and secukinumab was then stopped. And the treatment with secukinumab was considered in, for the remainder of the patients and up to week 52. And these patients were still on secukinumab till the primary endpoint of this study. And now up to the results uh, of the study, we have groups of uh, a group of patients that were TNFI naive and patients were TNFI experienced, and they were largely similar, though with a longer disease duration and more peripheral arthritis in the TNFI experienced group. In the TNFI naive patients, so 22 patients, 27% of the patients had a primary failure, another 27% a secondary failure and no patient stopped treatment due to adverse events. So at the week 52, slightly less than half of the patients were still on secukinumab. If we look at the TNFI experienced patients, so there were 62 patients, 29% had a primary failure, 15% a secondary failure. So that means that at week 52, we had still more than half of the patients on secukinumab. And if the uh, BASDI before and after treatment was compared, there was a statistically significant difference between the uh, BASDI score re before and after treatment. And, and this was both for the TNFI in naive patients with a change from at a group level from 6.2 to a 4 in BASDI, and, and the TNFI experienced patients with a change from 6.1 to 4.2. No major safety issues were reported. There was one discontinuation due to uveitis, another one due to alopecia, and one due to a recurrence of pneumonia in an older patient. So in conclusion, this study confirmed the safety and efficacy of secukinumab in both TNFI naive and TNFI experienced patients in daily clinical practice. And I, I think it's important to, to realize that actually knowing data from, from studies and using these drugs in daily clinical practice, there's a need to understand the effectiveness of, of treatment in, in daily clinical practice. And where that's where we see this type of uh, studies uh, coming up, which is relevant. On the other hand, I think we all acknowledge that there are limitations when we do not have a comparator, uh, which was the case of, of this study being only a retrospective study without the comparator group. So I, I think it's important to always try to have a comparator. And that brings us on the one hand, uh, trials, randomized control trials are the optimal setting when assessing the efficacy of, of treatment as we have a controlled uh, setting and we have a, a comparator and patients are randomized. We want to move to daily clinical practice and have patients that are representative of our daily clinical practice, not selected as they are to, to trials. Um, but it's important to not only have a comparator, but then to think about confounding by indication when we try to compare patients, because of course, in daily clinical practice, there is a reason for which uh, a rheumatologist chooses for one treatment and, and not the other often. So those are aspects that need to be considered, which makes this type of uh, studies challenging, but therefore very relevant. So uh, I think that this highlights that after, especially after failure of a TNF inhibitor, it's not clear which is the best mode of action to follow. Also, in the beginning, even before TNF uh, inhibition failure. And I think we need more uh, studies to address this uh, unmet need. What do you all think? Yeah, uh, thank you, Sophia. I mean, I think this is quite a sobering paper. I mean, I understand there are uh, limitations when this is not a 
study, sort of prospective study. This is a retrospective analysis of their experience. And you already mentioned that the anti-TNF inadequate responder population, they already had a higher, a longer disease duration. They probably, uh, these are the types of patients which I find they're a little bit older. They have got longer disease duration. They have other comorbidities. They are they have failed one drug, and these are difficult to, uh, you know, bring uh, under control their disease to bring under control. What is interesting to me, sobering statistics here, and of course it's a slight difference, but TNF naive, na TNF inhibitor naive patients, more than fifty percent, slightly more than fifty percent had dropped off by fifty two weeks, whereas TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. Yes about 45%. So it is kind of sobering that uh, we still don't know who is the ideal patient. And uh, when we see a patient in front of us in the clinic, should we start them on TNF inhibitor or should we start them on IL-17 inhibitor? We don't have any biomarkers. And we currently, in the US, we use according to what the insurance company would approve. I don't know the situation in Netherlands or Germany or Japan, um, but uh, we are mostly... Uh, guided by other things, uh, not really knowing which patient will respond to what, rather than the biology. We consider other things, what is convenient, what is available, et cetera, et cetera. And that's quite sobering. We certainly need biomarkers uh, in, in this uh, uh, situation as to decide which patient will respond uh, to what treatment. Yeah, I agree with you. I think biomarkers would be ideal. I think history also tells us that it's quite challenging to find additional biomarkers that make it up to our daily clinical practice. So it's there's a lot of research going on in that field, but unfortunately, uh, an important part of it ends up disappointingly not bringing new biomarkers to our daily clinical practice. I think the other part that can help is if we have head-to-head -head, uh, trials in which we obtain more knowledge than the current mostly placebo-controlled trials. So I think it's a, a, a complement and several, in several ways we can uh, increase our knowledge about which is the uh, optimal treatment option for each patient. My experience is slightly different that this more than 50% patients were TNF inhibitor. So TNF inhibitor naive patients, more than 50% at the end of a year don't stay on IL-17 inhibitor. That is not my experience. And I think maybe because we almost always start patients at 150 milligram of secukinumab and then jump up to 300 very quickly. And I'm not sure that they did that in this particular study. And then I'm able to keep certainly more than 50% of the people on secukinumab at the end of a year if they are TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. That actually is it has stuck with me with this study that is quite surprising. To me as well, and I think that emphasizes the limitation that I started by mentioning. We don't have comparative data, so it's it's yeah. a descriptive a description of of what happens, of a finding in a cohort without being able to compare it to, to, to other um, modes of action. So I, I think that's very important when we go to cohort studies. I think having a comparator is very important. Xenophon, do you have anything? Well, I don't have anything to add. I was thinking of a similar study that was published with the other IL-17 inhibitor that we have with Ixigizumab. Published means it's still in abstract form as far as I'm aware of, where they did a similar analysis. Um, and they found out that one out of four patients who have been pre-treated 
with um, DNF blocker and it was not responder and not, was not responding would then respond to um, L17 inhibition. So it's not only the um, level and the let's say the magnitude of response, but also if there is any response at all, let's say measured by others 40 and so on. But it brings us back to what you all, all both mentioned, who are these patients who we should start with the one or the other treatment. Um, on the other hand, we I, so we don't know that. I, so I, I don't have anything to add so far. This is all idea generating, I think, but we do, do need the prospective study. And the other thing that I am concerned about in this kind of analysis is uh, whether or not we're just measuring, you know, a one-time point outcome. Yeah. Although there is, of course, uh, over the period of a couple of months or a year, um, there is fluctuation of this activity for many different reasons. And, uh, you know, these studies need to have a one-time point decision so it yeah. might, be that we, might be that, you know, we just don't capture enough or we just capture too many patients who are or are not non-responders. So this is daily practice, but as Sophia also mentioned, uh, we need more more information. And you said that also to, uh, the, uh, the situation is unclear. Hideto? Yes. As Sophia mentioned, the limitation of this study includes only 22 patients with TNF naive was included. So the comparison is very, very limited. And also it is very important that which TNF inhibitor was used for TNF experience patient and how was the dosing and how was the outcome. Those information is very, very important for our very precise analysis of the study results. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, Xenophon, do you want to discuss the second paper? Yeah, sure. We can go over to the second paper, which is called a patient with adalimumab-induced refractory paradoxical palmoplantar pustulosis was successfully treated by ixekizumab, a case report. So we see here again situations where we have DNF blockade versus um, I-17 blockade. The patient overview that is now being presented in this um, case report is a patient with um, uh, who is male. He's age 45 uh, with no history of psoriasis. And the background of this story is that the NF blockade is associated with uh, paradoxical adverse events. So the, the situation here in this case report is whether or not um, we are able to draw any conclusion or knowledge on that matter. So that male patient, again, he's uh, age 45, no psoriasis in the past, um, uh, presented after six months of adalimumab treatment with painful eruption of pustules, uh, of pustules in both palms and soles. Um, a scalp plaque on his scalp uh, and the left lower limb and the palmoplantar uh, pustulosis area severity index score of 26. Um, adalimumab treatment was stopped. Asikinumab, um, 150 milligram was administered um, the way we know it, every two weeks in the beginning and thereafter, uh, they um, uh, increased it to 300 milligram. Um, so in that particular case, it was a zero, two and four weeks and then 300 milligrams. And after three months of sigikinumab, the lesion still did not improve. And of course, that may bring us in um, in daily practice in the situation that we have to explain ourselves um, to the patient what is happening and, of course, try to find out what the right treatment of the patient is. Now, in this case, the patient was um, uh, started with exikizumab in 160 milligram, and then he got the maintenance injection of uh, 80 milligram every other week. Um, the baseline um, PP-PASI, the paradoxical palmoplantar pustulosis um, uh, uh, severity index uh, prior to exikizumab was 26. 
after three months, um, the um, you know, score improved, uh, improved down to 10. The lesions and the pressures on the palms and the soles improved as well. They are being in, included in the uh, score. And after a patient's 10 months follow-up, the paradoxical psoriasis was a complete remission. So in conclusion, um, the authors say that in this in a TNF uh, inhibitor induced refractory paradoxical palmoplantar pusillosis, um, L17 inhibition in this case with exekisma particularly should be considered as an alternative option. And of course, the question is how or what kind of knowledge we gain out of this and um, how we would deal ourselves with such a situation in daily practice. Yeah, I um, I have had experience this uh, situation quite a few times with TNF inhibitors in the past. <clears throat> and the dermatologist at my center, they uh, generally call this uh, psoriasiform dermatitis rather than calling it psoriasis. This is TNF-induced psoriasis-type lesions. And the dermatologist at my center, they somehow differentiate between psoriasiform dermatitis and psoriasis. Be as it may, it is, this is quite typical that this type of psoriasis is this palmoplantar pustulosis, uh, which is quite distressing to the patient. And uh, interestingly here, it's not just TNF inhibitor, but one TNF, uh, sorry, one, uh, it's not just IL-17 inhibitor that worked, but one worked and the other did not, which is also very, I find it very interesting that uh, sacuculumab didn't work, but exacuculumab did work. I have had one patient, uh, maybe two patients, uh, now that I think about it, who in fact developed this problem on secukinumab as well. So this palmoplantar pustulosis is not just restricted to TNF inhibitors, but also seen with IL-17 inhibitors. And the recently, in fact, I was looking at uh, bimekizumab data, IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor. And there are, if you look at the 52-week uh, data, um, there are less than 5%, 2-3% of the patients had postulosis. So it's very interesting, and I don't know the mechanism behind this, how TNF inhibitors would cause this, and even IL-17 inhibitors might actually cause this, and I got no idea what to do if there is a T. I'll, so the two patients that I had who developed this, I sent them to dermatology, and they were treated with creams and lotions and potions, and I put them on JAK inhibitor. And they all responded. So this is not restricted to TN this um, phenomenon of palmoplantar pustulosis after biologics is not just res restricted to TNF inhibitor, but also seen with IL-17A and now also ANF inhibitor. I don't but know. Uh, yeah. I, I believe we learned two things out of this case report. First of all, um, these things can happen. Yeah. Need to be prepared. And secondly, it does make sense to even circulate within the drug class of IL-17 inhibitors, uh, something we knew already before in the TNF blocker area. Um, well, obviously, this is a pretty uh, dermatological or more, you know, goes to the dermatological side and um, might not uh, be seen so frequently in our area, but obviously you had some similar cases at all. But it does make sense to think about circulating within the drug class before we, we decide on the final um, treatment. Yeah, important, yeah. Professor Kameda, do you have any experience like this? Have you seen this? Yes. Also, my patients showed the hair loss. So th that was a very big concern. And also in Japan, an R23 inhibitor, Rizalcumab, was approved for palm plantar pastiosis. So I wonder that 
how about the R23 inhibitor for such mm. kind of patients? Mm. Mm. Yeah, this this patient, this patient had axial SPA, right? So it will be kind of, uh, I mean, I guess to treat the palmoplantar postular psoriasis, one mm. can use IL-23 inhibitor, but then um, the underlying disease um, may not be treated in that uh, situation. Um, mm. Sophia, do you have any comment on this? No, just um, I have the experience with DNF inhibitors. I never experienced this with IL-17 inhibitor. And I think it's uh, important, as Xenophon mentioned, uh, to see that even if in one IL-17 inhibitor doesn't work on, on this, we can try on another one. But uh, And and I, I think we know more that from TNF inhibition, it's more a class effect. So I would be more inclined after TNF having such an effect on uh, TNF inhibition to not to try another TNF inhibitor. And, and uh, as al an alternative to a different IL-17 inhibitor is also a JAK inhibitor, as you mentioned at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you all for uh, joining. And uh, thank you, the listeners, for joining us today for this XLSPA podcast brought to you by the CSF. We really hope you found it useful. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss any future episodes. Um, if you want to read more about um, what we have discussed today, head over to cytokinesignaling.com where you'll find detailed summary slides of each of the papers. See you next time. Ciao. Yeah. <laughs>